0: Listener Production.
1: I'm Gary Megan, and welcome to a Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Fast Ed Maggie is one of Australia's best loved TV chefs and food authors. I don't know why I'm telling you that, of course you know. Over the last decade, Ed has appeared on television, radio, in newspapers, magazines, and of course, has authored many, many books. Ed made the decision to leave law school to pursue a career in cooking. What a crazy idea, but he says with confidence, he's never looked back. And although he's best known for being a regular on our TV screens, we mustn't forget that he's got over 20 years of experience cooking some of the best restaurants, both in Australia and overseas. And it was just by chance, that he was noticed on the Sydney Weekender by a producer who was so impressed that they recommended him for an audition on Better Homes and Gardens. And of course, the rest is history. So let's find out more about Ed and what he's all about. This was a great interview because it was all about the nice things you'd expect around food. But it's not all about the nice things. Ed really surprised me with his honesty and particularly how deeply he's thought about his own challenges, failures and of course, success. And just a heads up, we do talk about some heavy topics, including mental health and suicide. Please welcome Ed Halmuggie, or as we know him, Fast Ed. Ed, all I want to know is how does a young man studying law, and let's face it, the happiest bloke on television, end up actually on television? Oh, completely by accident. <laughs> I, I, I'd never get it. I don't know about you, but I had
0: never given it even a moment's thought. There's a, there's a restaurant down at Willamaloo by the name of Otto. Yeah. where I was working and um, hanging out very happily one day on a Saturday and then suddenly we got a uh, a phone call from a Channel 7 crew who were making a show called Sydney Weekender and they desperately needed a last-minute restaurant to go and do one of their restaurant reviews at. And that's good, fine or whatever. Yeah, we're always very happy to be hospitable, Saturday lunchtime, no worries. The reason that they needed a last-minute place was, now you would remember Paul Merini, yeah?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, French chef. And famous Sydney chef, hardcore. Very
0: hardcore. (laughs) So they they were supposed to be filming with Paul, who'd woken up with a hangover and told them they should park their request somewhere east of Lyon, might be a more poetic way of explaining it. And so they needed a last-minute replacement, we sort of took care of them. And at the very end, they were running late, and so they said, look, we, we need, as part of this, we need you to show us how to make something, but we really only got literally about a, maybe five minutes to get this done. I said to them, well, it's going to take me at least a couple of minutes to get set up. And they said, oh, look, don't worry about it then. And I said, oh, no way, we'll do something. And so I, I showed them this really easy dish. Um, we had the gnocchi all ready to go that we'd already made, but this sauce you make literally when you take a can of tomatoes, drain off the juice, you crush the tomatoes between your hands, make a filthy mess, and literally all you need is garlic, olive oil, and salt. But it's not meant to be complicated. Yeah, there's some bravado in this cell, I'll, I'll admit to that. But, <laughs> you know, to cook that in 90 seconds and start the finish was pretty good. The woman who produced that segment at the time, she's married to the guy who was the series producer of Better Homes and Gardens. And so she's there at home editing on a computer and he walks past and goes, who's that idiot? I want to meet him. And so the following week I did a screen test, not knowing what that meant. And two weeks after that I was sent out to Rouse Hill in Sydney to go and join a shoot. I'm not really sure what to do. I'm very nervous. And suddenly this woman, whom I think I recognize, is walking down the street on a mobile phone, screaming to the left of her, screaming to the right of her, and turns around and said, Now one of you bastards get my bloody cigarettes. And I thought, Oh, hello, Noni. <laughs> <laughs> So that was my very first introduction to television. Yeah, but, yeah, that was the day I met, you know, Dr Harry and a whole bunch of other people. It was, um, you know, Graham Ross. and
1: For me, that's what Better Homes and Gardens was all about, those characters back then. And maybe it's because I've tuned out in recent years, but, you know, seeing those guys on TV and being so familiar. And actually, I remember looking at you and going, how the hell did he get that break? That's amazing, you know, because for many people in hospitality that are working the chops off, for some televisions like, oh, that's not real, but for others, that is, you know, what a break. I think it comes back to something
0: really fundamental, which is deep in my philosophy of life, even then, certainly now, two things. One is what I mentioned to you earlier. It's not about food. It's about hospitality. Mm. And I very much try to bring that perspective to what I do, whether I'm writing books, working in telly, doing radio, working online, doing events. It's about how can I make other people's experience and their time more rich, more rewarding, more enjoyable, more educative? But the second part is that I think all of the things I've done in my life are really just forms of storytelling. If you want to go off and study law, law is storytelling at the, you know, at the finest degree. You go to court and the whole point is to convince others of your perspective. Cookery, I don't know what, how you feel about it, but I reckon it's a form of storytelling, but one where we use ingredients rather than words to convey an idea and a feeling to people. These days, I, I use words in a book or recipes, but I also very much use the craft of storytelling through through television to try and convince people of two fundamental ideas. Number one, great food does not need to be intimidated. There are far too many people who spend a lifetime pursuing the idea that the more complicated you can make it, the more rewarding it should be, both for the chef and for the diner. My, my feeling is it may well be, be you know, rewarding for the chef, but I don't know the diner gets that much more out of it. You know, I remember working at Rockpool years ago and you would have tried the old date tart that was on yeah, the menu. delicious. Right? Oh, it's great. It's, it's fantastic. That damn pastry, Gary was the stupidest thing i have ever done in a commercial kitchen it <laughs> was so
1: it. <laughs> absurd
0: so and, and and it was really it was really to prove a point about where the edge of functionality was it didn't change anything for the diners but it was a beautiful pastry a smeared butter pastry very flaky and delicate just the right amount of sweetness you'd line it into a straight-edged ring and then you'd leave it sitting about a centimeter above the lip then using the round of your forefinger, you would literally fold it over all the way around so it curved inwards, freeze it, try to trim it flat with a scalpel with your head down near the, the bench, put it back in the freezer, reshape it, trim it again, put it back in the freezer, reshape it, trim it again. And then you had to try and blind bake that bloody thing without it moving. And the only thing I have to ask you is Why? <laughs> <laughs> what Why was that any more enjoyable for a diner than getting a straight-edged ring just, you know,
1: four mil higher? See, I love it. I love the idea of everything that you say in terms of simplifying it for people so that I can do that. You know, like a, somebody asked me for a beef Wellington recipe over the weekend because they bought a truffle. And I went, Really? why don't you just like roast the beef and, you know, grate the truffle over the top? You'll love it, you know, but they wanted to make a Wellington and I sent them this recipe and I deleted stuff out of it because it was just so bloody big and then they did say when they received it, oh, that's a lot of work. And I went, yeah, look, buy the pastry and think of it as mushrooms, pastry beef and you're okay. You sent them the cut-down version yeah. of water, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely yeah. I did. Beef Wellington is about the most convoluted oh thing my on the planet. goodness me. But you done know? well, but done well, I have to, it's you great. know, I have to give. It's great. Yeah. It's beautiful, you know, but, a simple, mm, you know, sure. let's be honest, a pie is beautiful too. So there's a little bit yeah. of me that mm. I think about that date tart, knowing what it is and I suppose what it represents in Neil Perry's, you know, kind of restaurant career. It is beautiful. So I do like the idea of you slaving away with sweat on your brow trying to get this pastry absolutely perfect. Otherwise, it goes in the bin, right? Well, (laughs) yeah, it it really does. It went to staff meals. That's exactly right. If you (laughs) had it so much as a drop of custard still. Look, I've I've got nothing but respect for Lorraine Godsmark and Neil. Back to you because you were saying, you know, one of two points and being on television. Mm. I was going to say that what television for me has done and, and for people like you Maybe you have a different view, but you've gone from a very small field of influence in your restaurant where you've got a number of, mm. you know, you've got your, your your customers that you see regularly and they love you and they keep coming back. But once you put yourself on television, now your frame of reference, your field of influence is enormous. I think it's much more rewarding in a sense. You can do nothing wrong. Everything you do is delicious, is it not? Uh, mostly, mostly. <laughs> um, I'm very
0: happy to own my failures on television though. Uh, whether it's the inability, my inability in 20 years to catch a fish on camera, the moment they stop rolling, I will catch a fish. But yeah. I've never caught a that fish is on from camera. from a keen fisherman, I believe, yeah? Is yes, that right? exactly. exactly. So, <laughs> the only time we've ever caught anything on camera was we were at Bustleton Pier in Western Australia. And I'm throwing it and every time I cast, I'm bringing up the most beautiful squid, one after the other, after the other. And on camera, I turn around to our producer and the camera whoops around and said, Dan, you see? Squid, finally, I've caught a fish. And he goes, yeah, squid's not a fish, mate. <laughs> like he's all right. Yeah, no, he's right. <laughs> uh, I agree with you that certainly your, your arc of influence grows. You also lose a lot, though, because the directness of contact is somewhat lessened. My favorite thing to do is live events. I absolutely love it. I love having, a, you know, 400,000, 3,000 people in a crowd and to be able to educate and entertain and have people laughing and, and just having an amazing experience with their kids, with their loved ones. That's the bit that I enjoy more than anything else because of the directness, the connection. I think that does harken back to the way I used to run restaurants. I mean, if service allowed it, running a restaurant or owning a restaurant, I would always just go out and serve some tables. And it wasn't actually so much for them. It was for me. I got more out of it than they did. Personally, I got out of it that lovely warmth of the connection. But if you really want to find out what sort of night people are having at your place, don't stand next to the table. If the conversation suddenly stops, either you're very intimidating, shouldn't be, or something is very
1: wrong. <laughs> and then it's your job to work out what it is. I found that, that really rewarding. I remember somebody, I'm trying to remember who it was. It could be somebody like. Curtis Stone, and he said that, uh, and this is a long, long time ago, he probably doesn't even remember, but he just in conversation, he said what he loved about television is that he couldn't do anything wrong. Everything was just brilliant. You know, like even if he, you know, let's say he made a tart and, the, you know, he just lined the pastry clumsily, people go, wow, you know, like and everything was just great. Oh,
0: see, so you're asking the question in a different way. I See, I had interpreted that differently. Oh, there I you thought go. You were going, I like the answer, I you, Yeah, you know, see, I was going with that whole bullshit thing that we do in TV
1: and it's an absolutely perfect Delicious. result. <laughs> yeah. and we do do that. And, and and that's something you're taught, right? You know, in terms of delivery, regardless sure. of if it's not working, if you tell everybody, It's fantastic. Everybody goes, it's fantastic. No, I meant from a, you see, when you're in a restaurant, everything's Mm. very personal. You know, like you're, if you're the chef and you go to that table and you say, How did you find the lamb with the whatever it is? And they go, Oh, you know? It's very personal. It, oh yeah, it hurts, doesn't it? It really hurts. It really hurts. So it's exhausting in a sense. Whereas and I think what Curtis was saying at the time is, you know, gee, I love it because, you know, I'm just great and people tell me. And he goes, in my whole career up to that point, nobody ever really told him. You know, from moment to moment, you're just great. You're fantastic.
0: Yeah. See. I, okay. So there's a, a small difference
1: <laughs> in that. I never. I have never
0: watched myself on television. I absolutely. when I'm forced to for work, I, I will, but I hate it. Mm. As I've never listened to my radio shows. I don't read my own books. When we do live work, I don't watch that stuff back. I just partly it's my neurosis about how I come across, but in a much bigger sense, I think by not overanalyzing what I do. I've actually given myself the freedom for it to feel fresh for me as well. It's probably breaking down the fourth wall a little, but uh, I write, develop, test, double test, everything I've ever done on telly. I think in nearly 20 years, I've done three recipes that weren't mine and they all came out of the magazine as promo. So I I go into every shoot knowing full well what it is strategically I need to do. Mm. But in terms of the narrative, the storytelling, what it's about, I've got no idea. I've given it no thought at all. And I literally just spend a couple of minutes before we roll just getting one or two ideas fixed in my head and then I just talk to people and that's always been my way of doing that and you know does it mean that it's always great? I don't know but I start with a with a belief that I have such a fundamental respect for the people I'm speaking to I really I love the families at home who are spending some time with us or are going to consider cooking what we show them. I love that. I think it's, it, I, I'm really warmed by that. So it really is very much like talking to a friend. So you're able to just chat. You don't have to sort of, you know, work it up ahead of time and, and have it all convoluted. It's certainly not scripted television. Yeah.
1: Did somebody but, teach you that, do you think? Was it very early on? Do you think that somebody said, oh, by the way, Ed, if you do this, it always works? Or is that something that you I, I, yeah, There's a Yeah, there's a shout-out
0: I'd have to give to a producer I worked with very, very early on by the name of Rowan Jacobson. I think he was at the second shoot I ever did. And so when I first started working in telly in 2002, I think The Naked Chef had started the, the year before. And it was, oh, I mean, it's the biggest thing on television, this young English bloke it was amazing. He'd actually, it had been on UK TV a couple of years earlier, but had come to Australia. And it was interesting because there hadn't been a defining personality in, you know, on food television in Australia before, not since the Galloping Gourmet. I mean, it had been yeah. 30 years. And this, this foreigner was defining it, and everybody was sort of adopting that whole same poise. And I must have inadvertently, and I think it was inadvertent, uh, done the same because Rowan pulled me aside after about 10 minutes of shooting, took me for a walk, and he said, I've got to explain something to you. You need to stop this bollocks you're going on with pretending to be this character. No. You see, television is very interesting. People either love you or hate you. There's no way of knowing, not until you've been on telly for a while. If you pretend to be someone else, they will eventually work you out and they will loathe you for that. If you're a pretender, they're going to hate you. If you're just you and they like you, you can pretty much do it for as long as you want. And I thought to myself, well, that's, that certainly makes it a bit easier, not having to stylize myself, and I sort of fell into that. I, I, I think he was absolutely right. What you see on telly, it's just me. I'm not, I'm not someone else. I don't have this alternate personality that I can draw on when times get tough. It's just me.
1: Yeah. And you've stayed busy. I mean, actually, when I, you know, obviously I know you're an author and you've written books and the latest book, which is Seasonal Kitchen, I go, oh, he's written another book, you know. But you've written a lot. I've written four books, two of which I did with George, you know mm. how, how lazy is that? You know we just came up with, you know, I think fifty or sixty ideas or recipes each. I think on a flight yeah. on the way to Perth, or one of them. Yeah, um, yeah you know how lazy is that? And it was very rewarding because it was really quick to do, which is great. But then I look at the mm. list of stuff that you've done, and I go, gee, you've just maintained a certain momentum and busyness through the whole thing. Well, yes, when does no, this come I mean, there's,
0: Well, there's certainly a lot of people who publish a lot more than I do until the book industry yeah. got whacked around the head a few years back. Yeah. You know, I had colleagues like Karen Martini who was putting out a book a year, if not more often, And, and all credit to her that she had a willing audience who loved what she was writing. And as they should, she's talented. For me, my idea was that I would publish a book when I had something to say. And to be honest, some of these books were purely geared at mass market publication, you know, getting into the discount department store's you know, the sort of thing where you could move 60 or 100,000 copies. Great. No problem. I recognise that that's an important part of both brand building and also
1: yeah. getting a good enough relationship with your publisher. <laughs> yeah, but It's, so, it's know, also I'm a different market, Ed, too, isn't it? You know, like when it, you're it is, saying, you is. know, you're talking to an audience of 3,000 people, they're not all foodies and, you know, no, thinking no. about complicated recipes or even the start of a love of cooking. You know, so often no, those, no. you know, when you say it's a discount book, that's somebody that. You're standing at the checkout picks it up and goes, Oh, I might cook something out of that. Much more commonly, what
0: the research shows is that they don't buy it for themselves, they buy it for someone else. Yeah. Because yeah. at 1995, they think it's a good present price point yep. that's not going to break the bank. They can afford to do it. And oh, you know, I know, you know, Carol's boy is off to university. He might want a cookbook. But of all the projects I've done over the years, the one that gave me the greatest satisfaction was a book we did probably eight years ago called The Food Clock. And this is a very unusual thing. Did it sell brilliantly? Nah, it sold averagely. I think we did less than 10,000 copies in the end. But it was, it was something I wanted to do because it was an idea that I had that I think is still valid. It was both a novella and a cookbook all in one where it went through the course of a year telling the story of the comings and goings in a small town just east of Bordeaux, but it was the recipes that came from this, each chapter's little tale that were then elucidated as recipes and images following those words. And so it sort of had something for everybody. It was charming. It was whimsical. It was mildly philosophical. It was brilliant. And interestingly enough, at the time, I was mad keen on swimming. And I actually pretty much wrote each chapter while swimming laps at Victoria Park Pool in Sydney over winter. It was freezing cold, but the water's heated. I keep swimming until I mentally you know, marked out the, the narrative for a chapter and then I'd quickly hop out, have a coffee and type it out. Uh, it was <laughs> that's the most win- wonderful That's a experience. window into
1: fast ed, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Because unlike making television, I couldn't just
1: make it up as I go along. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever, whatever kind of um, teases the creativity and a lot of people, I'm the same, yeah. if I sit down and go, write, you know, and I've got a wall of cookbooks like we all do, or walls of cookbooks, mm. sit down and go, right, I'm going to write stuff down that you, you can't. You know, sometimes no. you'll be driving your car and you go, oh, I love that dish. You know, or you'll yeah, be walking yeah. down the street and, I don't know, you see something and you go, oh, it reminds me of that.
0: There's actually a, there's a really interesting practice uh, of Jewish walking meditation called Hip bodidut that I, uh, I'm a big fan of. And it is about going out somewhere, usually somewhere a little bit far from people because you look mad and you basically, you speak to the world out loud. The idea is you actually voice what you're thinking you know you walk down the main street of Avalon where I am and people are definitely going to stare but you walk through the the national park and it's like no nah, I get away with this i have the same process very much as far as writing is concerned i find unless it's recipes recipes are, i've got a very much a formulated technique whenever it's anything prosaic i find i
1: need to vocalize it before i can let it gel i love making this series and i hope that you love listening too if you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, and more importantly, about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. We, can we dig in a little bit into your, your chef past? Only because, you know, I think sure. people, you know, most people that know you know you from television. You get, I think you get to that point and I feel very much the same. You know, people go, mm. oh, yeah, you, you know, you're on television. And I go, yeah, I am or I was, you know, but yeah. actually, you know, at heart, you know, I'm a chef. That's what I'm trying to do. And mm-hmm. the t- television was unexpected. Television was a – or even, you know, demonstrating and all this kind of stuff probably in much the same way as you as a way of, you know, boosting the business or raising your profile to boost the business or bring you into a – you know, into a new market. You know, it was all very practical for me. Don't know how, sure. how you felt about it. So no, very when, true. When we rewind, I mean, you know, what I read about you was that you set out to be something else and fell into cooking because you were working, I presume, part-time, working, you know, as a kitchen assistant or as a dishwasher. Is that right? Is that where it all oh, started yeah. when you were a kid? So I was a very naughty kid. Like, uh, I think this is interesting. You can talk about being a naughty kid more than being a dishwasher if you want.
0: Yeah. Now you've said it. So, yeah, you know, like, I mean, the, the, you know, the the reality is it. You know, I, I, until recently, I really wouldn't talk about it. Uh, it was too hard and too personal. But um, I've gotten to a stage in my life where I really think people like me aren't prepared to talk openly, then wash anyone else, you know. Um, so I, I had the somewhat dubious privilege of being born with bipolar disorder, and that made me a... You know, bipolar really doesn't come on until you start to go through puberty. But when it hits you, it can hit you really, really hard. And I, I certainly had the more, the more manic end of it rather than depressive end of it. And that made me largely un, not just uncontrolled but uncontrollable as a teenager. And so, you know, five high schools later, that would be an idea of, of what my, my progression was like because no one really knew what was going on. It was just that I was a bit of a shit of a kid. On my 14th birthday, my father, who had absolutely had enough, told me to go out and get a job. Literally, go out and don't come home until you're employed. And I I walked around for about seven or eight hours on a Saturday morning. Uh, It was late in the afternoon. I came to a a cafe restaurant up at Neutral Bay. Uh, which doesn't exist anymore. And so i said, oh, I don't suppose you've got any jobs going. And yes, you're exactly right. i got a job as a kitchen hand. I was doing that for about oh, maybe a month, month and a bit, and then suddenly on a Sunday in the middle of service, the the chef, it was a one-chef kitchen, the chef and the restaurant manager who was, I mean, I remember him being quite senior, but he was probably 19, you know. They had a a stand-up argument, and Denis Defazure, the fine chef, he uh, took his elephant beer, which he worked through each service, um, (laughs) and headed off. He was done. But it was, you know, quarter to one on Sunday lunch. And so I wasn't sure what to do, so the orders just kept coming in. No one seemed to notice that Denny wasn't there. And I of thought, well, I, I suppose someone should um, make lunch. None of it was very complicated. I mean, you know what food in Australia was like in the 80s. I mean, it was, you know, veal parmesanas and, you know, um, scallopinis and maybe a roasted chicken breast. I mean, it was nothing complicated. And I'd been watching diligently and even doing a bit of hands-on help with Denny when he'd get in the muck. And so I just started cooking. You know, how did I go? I mean, these days I'd probably say I've got a four out of ten. But enough, (laughs) you know, enough so that the customers out there really didn't notice. And at the end of lunch, the restaurant manager came in and said, uh, where's Denny? I need to sort something." He left. Well, when? About three hours ago. Who's been cooking? I said, I have. How hard can it be? Anyway, the the restaurant owner then thought, oh, well, I'm onto some cheap labour here. So he used to give me, you know, Working about 30 hours a week during school. And then I, I left school when I, uh, when I left school, I left home straight away pretty much. Um, so I was doing a law degree and working about 40 hours a week, ended up in a little one chef's hat restaurant um, as a chef to party, working in pastry. And it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. But eventually I, I had a bit of a, my bipolar sort of had kicked in um, on the, the downward cycle. And I went into a deep, deep funk and I was not coping at all. Uh, It was the first time I sort of saw anyone about it. And they recommended that, you know, studying a double degree full-time and working a full-time job was probably more than an average human ought to
1: take on. Uh, So when when, uh, can I slow you down a bit? When you say deep, deep funk, how was that manifesting itself on a day-to-day basis? Did you recognise it?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, you know, it had a few aspects to it. I came in the form of substance abuse. I mean, as a chef, you know, drinking way too much. Um, and there was always other bits and pieces hanging around inability to get out of bed in the morning, just a general rottenness. Uh, and you know, you know, and I don't, I mean, to alarm anyone listening. And if it does alarm you, remember, there's lots of people you can talk to, you know, I was very suicidal and that's something which I've grappled with for much of my life. Yeah. You know, and that's not somewhere I wanted to be. It was this thing that would just grip me. The interesting thing is that uh, for people who are bipolar is that eventually it passes and then you're left with virtually no memory. Of having had those thoughts. <laughs> so you don't learn. And that's the that's why eventually you if you want to get through that, you need to go and see someone and find strategies for coping yeah. with that. Which you know, I mean, from the time I was in, you know, in uni, it was probably 25 years before I finally had the courage to say, I need some help. Yeah. You know? And there's Lifeline in every state as well. So, you know, if you don't have someone in your family you can talk to, have a chat to the guys at Lifeline. They'll put you in contact with someone.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to about it with my wife last night because we've got uh, various people in our family and network that, you know, suffer from depression at various levels and I've been exposed to it, Mm. not that I have, but over the years. And actually recognising it, you know, in the past in my years in hospitality that lots of people you know, have struggled with this. And it's a very unforgiving business. It really is. Yeah, but also attracts a
0: lot of people who have that predisposition because of its fast-paced nature, mm. its daredevil attitude, and its inclination towards bad decision-making.
1: So <laughs> It's true. I think I was listening to a podcast with David Chang, actually, and I'm not sure that he's bipolar, mm. but talks about his depression quite a lot and his medication, mm. et cetera. And he said that he was becoming increasingly, and don't quote me on this if anybody's listened to it, but the sense of it was increasingly damaging in his own business because he said when he was in one of those manias, as you said, everything was amazing. You know, every idea that he had was the juiciest, tastiest fruit he'd ever had, and he couldn't understand why anybody else didn't get it.
0: Yeah, but the other thing is, you know, if you have a real force of personality, when you are at those peaks, you can carry not only the people next to you, you can take the whole room, the world with you. They will fall into your arms because they love the idea of the force of your personality at that moment. At some of my worst times in, of dealing with bipolar, i remember you know, this is in Melbourne and we've got, there's like 1500 people in the audience. And I'm doing uh, eight shows a day uh, on the hour, you know, 40 minute show, 15 minutes autograph, five minutes to catch your breath, back on. And it was, it was like oxygen for me. I, I loved it because of the, the response you get from a room full of people. But that, that ability to guide and transition so many people was really predicated upon the fact that my ineffable mania was driving me at such a pace But it looked like a lot
1: of fun. (laughs) And I assure you, it ain't a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, so from the outside, everything's bright and sparkly, but on the inside. Yeah. In in opposition to that, though, do you remember, say, a moment when you were at work where, you know, like you mentioned, you couldn't get out of bed, you know, Mm. or something that you said? I mean, I certainly know in my career, there's one particular moment, and I won't say any names, but I remember we'd had, and I'm even cringing thinking about it. It was just the most mm. stressful period. I was a head chef at Browns in uh, Melbourne which was years ago, mm. and the stress was buckling. And I remember we were up in the canopy. You know, at the end of I don't even know if they do it anymore. It's just dangerous, and you know, people would be freaking out about it. We turned all the stoves off. We put cardboard boxes on the stoves, and we we're yeah, up in and it, you wash the canopy. We were up every in day. the canopy washing yeah. it with soapy water, and I turned around, and there was a particular young lady who had a big spoonful of ice cream in her hand. And she was flirting with the, one of the pastry chefs. And I just let go a barrage of the most terrible things that I, I mm. honestly, I blanked. I don't know what I said, but that look on her face, I'll never mm. forget. So if she's listening, I apologize previously. But, yeah, but Gary,
0: almost certainly one of those moments. You, yeah, but almost certainly what you did was not just par for the course for hospitality at the time. Yeah. But we're probably talking probably early 90s in, here. Sure. But it's also almost certainly been entirely forgotten by her. And this is the really sore part of being human is the things we do that we feel bad about. We never let go, even though everyone around us almost certainly does. Mm. Now, that is the best and the worst part of being human because it's the thing that encourages us and guides us to do better in the future. But if you don't permit yourself the forgiveness freedom, in the end you'll stop forgiving it in others. And that's when you can really start to find yourself learning. So the fact that you, you still cringe about it, I just an opinion,
1: I reckon that's a great thing. It shows the <laughs> fundamental humanity of who you are. It certainly was a game changer for me. I think I decided at that moment that I had an inability at a certain level, at that level, to deal with stress and I needed to calm down and I wasn't a good decision maker and I wasn't a good leader. Mm. It was like yeah. instrumental in, in changing regardless of how busy it is, regardless of how much stress everybody was feeling, someone yeah. in the team, and it was your job as the head chef, was to remain level-headed. And then I was always, yeah. I suppose, you know, and I've worked for some interesting people over my, my career, but then often I'd be at loggerheads with someone that was the opposite.
0: So mm. interesting. Yeah, As a, as a head chef I, or a business owner, I've only ever had three rules fundamentally. Number one, don't be late. I cannot stand lateness <laughs> unless there's a very, very good reason. I find it so fundamentally disrespectful to everybody else who has to then help pull your weight. If there's a good reason, fine, that's fine. But if you're just disorganised and lazy, you know, nine o'clock doesn't mean walking the door. It means you're at your bench, topping board out, your yeah. jacket on, you're ready to go, ready. you know. Secondly, I will not stand from anybody is blunt knives. <laughs> and all, I, would,
1: I didn't expect that answer. Carry well, on. Well, you know what it is?
0: <laughs> well, well, the reason is that... All these farmers and wholesalers and distributors do such extraordinary work to bring us the very best. We pay top dollar for the very best ingredients. And, you know, as a a proud pastry chef, I'll say most pastry chefs are the worst example of this, and they'll be there slicing through strawberries with the the side of a spoon. I mean, (laughs) what are you doing, pal? You know, have some respect for the bloke who grew, the bloke who picked, you know, the people who distributed those strawberries, and more importantly, have some respect for your customer who has to eat it, you know? Mm. So This is from I, I, a
1: man who used a scalpel to trim the pastry around a, a flannel yeah, ring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the last thing, and this is the thing I feel I've always thought most passionately about, is
0: I don't tolerate people losing their temper in the kitchen. If you're going to get angry, I mean, like really lose your ability to think, step out. And in the middle of service, when like, you know what it's like, you'll be 120 person service, with four, four on the line and one, one in the pastry and one prep person, that's it, and you're trying to do very high-end food. It is too hard. And a waiter comes to the pass and says, I'm really sorry. I thought you said table 32. I realise now it was table 22. We're missing a veal yeah. for this table, and, and they're ready to go.
1: Now you have to ask
0: yourself, who does it help to start yelling? It's not going to help the customer. All you're going to do is make that waiter utterly useless for the rest of the night. You'll you'll cripple them for what you need them to do. All you'll do is you'll show your staff a terrible example and actually confuse them about how to solve it. What you need is to be able to turn and say, okay, here's the problem. How do we find a solution? Right? You straight to your grill person, have you got a veal underway? Can we can we rescue this? Because the rest of the meals here I've got three minutes before I've got to send them or they're going to be right. Find a solution. I just the thing I cannot stand, I've never been prepared to tolerate, not since I was a young person was the idea of the bully chef, but it's not the screaming. It's the loss of control, Mm. you know? So you're describing the situation that you were in. What you were describing was a welled-up feeling of overwhelmedness. Mm. You're not describing a circumstantial issue. Did you really care if she's eating ice cream? No. Do you really care if the pastry chef wants to waste a bit of his time and leave her home later? Not really. You felt that it was disrespectful and you just reached your breaking point. That's a different circumstance. The people who just yell and scream because they
1: don't know any better and can't control themselves, I think they need a break. And Look, thankfully, well, in my experience, you know, the industry has changed, many industries have changed enormously over the last 10 or 15 years. Not to say it's yes, solved, and not to say it doesn't exist, but there's certainly a different idea of it. And some of that's just born out of necessity. I mean, if you scream at your staff, they just leave.
0: The other thing which is, is kind of fascinating, though, is the role that having so many more female chefs in the kitchen yeah. Has had. I mean, the growth since the mid-90s through to now, the last 25 years, I mean, I, I work as an ambassador for TAFE and I routinely am handing out awards for VET programs, apprenticeship programs, whatever. You know, not only do girls now make up more than half of all the apprentices coming through, but they're winning the majority of the awards as well. Yeah. And that, you know, having, having really good staff who are not prepared to put up with your old-fashioned bollocks anymore
1: does change things. Yeah. It's great, but with any kind of balance that you can add into a stressful situation is always a plus for me. You know, and that can, can be a you- mixed workforce of whether they're part time, full time, and it just goes against the grain of you know whether male, female. You know, it doesn't matter. It's a way of adding balance into the kitchen. I think it. I'm it helps. really, really
0: interested to see what the impact, long term impact of the migration ban to Australia at the moment is yeah, going sure. to be. Because Australia has relied for about 30% of its hospitality workforce on migrant visas. Yeah. Now, they're not coming. Yeah. And we
1: don't know when they'll be coming. Yeah, I think for Um, for me, it makes it dynamic. That's what it's all about. I mean, some of the pleasure and the, you know, because we're in hospitality, not that we all are, but we like to think that we are. We're people, people. It's what drives us, yeah. you know. It's like you 100%. said, hospitality is about serving someone. It's what drives you. Mm. So some of the pleasure of going to work every day can be that. It makes us feel mm. part of something that's kind of, you know, global and interesting. and
0: Absolutely. What's really interesting, though, from a, a risk perspective, though, is that with the loss of the access oh. to that workforce, people are having to change their business structures.
1: Yeah, completely. To
0: ones that require lower amounts of slightly higher paid labour. Yeah. And so I actually reckon it's the single biggest threat to high-end fine dining that exists because you
1: simply will not be able to get the people.
0: You won't be able to afford them, you know, because there is this inflationary pressure on wages as a result.
1: Yeah, but, you know, with that, you get a jump in wages, you get a jump in prices, and then maybe that's not such a bad thing, you know, that in the end if Mm. we have to pay more to eat out, you know, I think eating out in Australia has always been Great value. Pretty affordable. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, I was going to ask you, like, in your – because you've worked in some great places, but when was the best time for you as a chef? When were you loving it? When couldn't you get enough of it? Do you
0: remember it? Uh, it, Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. It would be one of two answers. Um, I am at heart, rather than a chef, I am a pastry chef and baker. That is the driving passion, the abiding love of my life. Mm. Um, Every Friday morning uh, I go in early to our studio not only will I bake challah for Shabbat, but um, I'll also you know, bake sourdough, I'll bake baguette, I'll bake bagley. I'll bake rugelach. I just I try to keep Friday's quarantine just to, for that me time, <laughs> uh, at least half the day. But the other one was I worked at a place on the west coast of Vancouver Island called oh, the Wiccan Inish Inn. Now, at the time, uh, they've got a different system, obviously, in North America. They have the Zagat Stars. So you can get up to five of those. They had five. It was also Relais Chateau, Relais Gourmand. You know, it's on a par with places like the French Laundry. Mm. You know, I mean, the, the laundry was obviously much more highbrow. This had similarly extraordinary food, but in a much more relaxed and rustic environment. It's a place literally built on the rocks mm. uh, above the waves of the Northern Pacific Ocean. You would have narwhals breaching just outside the restaurant. You would have seals and elephant seals and grey whales and humpback whales, literally just outside the restaurant. It was the most extraordinary place. What made it culinarily phenomenal was that about a third of all the ingredients that we got came from the local First Nations communities who lived in forests around the wick. It literally turn up in the afternoon in a pickup truck with stuff and you'd You'd then have an hour and a half to work out what your menu was for the night. Uh, and so the, that menu only had three items on it, three entrees, three main, three dessert every day because that's you know that's all you needed to have. And keep in mind that probably 85% of our guests at the time would choose that menu because that was the essence of eating from the source. And this is around to 2002, th- 2002.
1: I must be honest. I looked at a picture this morning at that uh, hotel and it looked beautiful. Mm-hmm. It looked Australian just from the – I hate to say that because obviously you need to be Canadian, but just this wild, rugged coast. And I thought, what a beautiful place. My question was oh, my question was actually, why did he go there? Why well, he- so his, his, <laughs> Charles
0: McDonald, his dad used to go out to the west coast of Vancouver Island to go fishing in the Clayoquot Sound. And so then his dad started like a campsite there at Tofino. And then Charles went, well, you know what, we may as well build something proper, 49 rooms because you got you can't have 50 or more rooms do you want to be Raleigh Chateau. It's got to be a small hotel, 49 rooms, usually no more than 98 people in the place. That's not bad when you want to cook high-end food. We had 23 in the kitchen.
1: So Mm. not going to end on a downer, there'll be another question, but then that's the pure joy, this moment that Ed was in his element and loving everything, including cooking What What do you reckon was the worst time? Uh, or or I, the di- most difficult time? doesn't have to be the, the worst. Most, yeah, no, most, no, difficult, most difficult, challenging.
0: Look, it, it might not surprise you um, that when you have someone who spends their whole life trying to you know, take care of others. I was running a, a, a restaurant at Palm Beach in Sydney and um, it was a very seasonal place from the October long weekend through to Easter, absolutely flat out. But really it was more like October long weekend to Australia Day and then it really tailed off because – all the downfers. You know what a downfer is? No,
1: never heard of it. Oh, oh, they come.
0: <laughs> oh darling, we're down for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> so gotcha. Palm Beach Palm Beach gets a few of those. And so the team and I had just done, uh, what would that make it, for a 12, 14 weeks of most people doing at least four or five doubles a, d- a week. Everybody's knackered. Australia Day, we get absolutely smashed for lunch. We're almost completely out of food and prep for dinner. And then in walks, uh, the person who was at time the most senior food critic in Australia. I'm not going to name him because I actually really like him. I've got to know him since and I've got a good relationship with him. But I I saw him walk in from the open kitchen. I walked over and said, you can't be serious. Like this is the last day of our season. You cannot be doing a review today. It's not, that's not reasonable, mate. And his answer was, "If you're open for business, you're open to be reviewed."
1: Yeah, fair enough. Well, come on, yes come or no? On. You've yes just no. got to accept it. Fair enough. Sure. sure. <laughs>
0: and then, no, no. The story gets really good. You gotta love this. <laughs> so he orders, and the one thing you got to know that if you're listening, you don't got to know that food reviewers never give them anything complimentary. Don't give them any special service; nope. they will think you've got something to hide.
1: Yep. Normal. And they're looking at other tables to see if they're getting the same thing. Absolutely, and how prompt
0: they're getting getting served. And so he walked in, he was sat at 7.15, he ordered his entree in Maine, his entree goes out, he polished off every last bit, he's wiping the plate with some bread, very good sign, either the portion's too small or the food's very good. (laughs) And then just as we're starting to get his entree, his main together, the whole restaurant goes black. There's a blackout. (laughs) And because of the blackout, we thought, oh, well, we'll just work by Candle's. But, uh, of course, the electric safety switches for the gas stoves, they cut out as well. Mm. So there's no gas. We have no way of c- cooking. It, it just all goes, goes pear-shaped. Because, and we, I have to go out. I'm really sorry. I don't know when the blackout's going to finish. Uh, of course, you won't be charged for this evening, blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to stay and wait, we're happy to uh, throw a glass or something your way and see. But other than that, I'm, I really don't know what to tell you. And I got to this particular table And this person said to me, I would have thought you'd be able to find some creative solution for that. And I went, not really sure what you mean. i got 100 people in here. And anyway, the review came out uh, Tuesday week afterwards. And where we had previously had one chef's hat, uh, he gave us 12 out of 20. Wow. And was so biting and so critical. And I've never felt more hard done by in my life. And I'm not someone who generally feels bitter. But I just remember thinking to myself, that's just that's just plain nasty. It took me a very long time to recover from that. Uh, and I don't know why. All my other reviews in my life had all been amazing. You know, I remember when Matt Evans came to a place I was running in town. You know, he, he gave us 16, but he, he said, this is the most exciting food I've eaten anywhere in Australia. I wouldn't be surprised if chefs are you know, queuing up at the door to find ideas for their own menus which is about as lovely a compliment as you can be paid by a restaurant review, particularly when they're not giving you any more than 16 you know. But yeah, this this hurt. I went into a deep funk after that, and I'm sure it's related to what we talked about earlier, but I think it was probably six months before I found my feet again.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't just affect you, though. It affects the whole team. Maybe not so much anymore, you know, because of the advent of social media and instant kind of feedback and... You know, mm. uh, you know, certainly with Instagram, I mean, it's just changed everything. And maybe the it lessened the kind of, you know, cruel blows that maybe, a, you know, an influential food critic could pass down. But that that's a hard one for everyone. It, it is. And, you know, I, I think
0: I, I was probably too sensitive to it. I was sensitive to it in ways that probably I now have the strength to get past. I didn't at the time, didn't have the, the skill set to be able to move past it. I actually, I stayed on another month. I found someone else to take my place as head chef, mm. and I have never run a restaurant since. Wow. And I regret that. I yeah. deeply regret that, Gary. It, I allowed it to beat me, and it took me a long, long time to find my feet after that. Yeah. Just in, in every part of my life. I think it's, you know, it's the self-perception thing. I'd seen myself in a particular way. I never expected to be you know, amongst the highest coterie of chefs. It's not what – that's not my thing. But I knew I had a skill set and I was very good at what I did. And to be so publicly dragged down and I perceived under was complicated.
1: Yeah, especially under those circumstances because then that plays more into the, the negativity, I suppose, doesn't it? Because you, yeah, you, you can say, well, that's not my fault and I didn't do this and I didn't do that. I mean, it's... I did actually ask him about it later when we were co-hosting an event up at Byron Bay
0: about three years later, a big food festival. And his answer was, I never apologize for reviews. I said, that's absolutely fine. I just wanted to know. He said, no, no, I wrote what I thought at the time. I said, okay. Wouldn't give me anything. But by that time, I'd managed to find myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, you know, we've all been in the business long enough to see it, you know, really affect people. And it's hard because it's that emotion again. You know, there's all these little fun things that people say, you know, that are throwaway, but they do actually mean a lot. You know, you're only as good as your last meal. And you can kind of, it's a throwaway comment, but sometimes that, you know, in, in that sense, it really rings true, doesn't it? And so you feel connected to every single table. I mean, I'd always argue with my team. You go, they go, oh, yeah, well, like, you know, it's not that important. It was just one out of 100 people. And I go, yeah, but that was one person's big night out. And you ruined it mm. for whatever reason. Yeah, I'm not wanting yeah, it exactly. to sound, sound like a disaster, but I always felt that it was important to try as hard as you can yeah. for every single. Yeah, but hour. absolutely. But
0: Gary, there's a really important lesson I learned after that experience. Uh, and I really wish I'd known it a long time ago. And any young chefs listening, please consider this. You can work your butt off to try and make someone's night incredible. And yes, you should. But if you're a diner, you too are part of the theatre of dining. Yeah. And if you turn up in a shitty mood arguing with your partner, we can't fix that for no. you. Yeah. That's not our job, you know. If you want to sit there and be a grumble bum,
1: that's on you, pal. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. There's, <laughs> there's, look, there's many lessons to what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> there's many lessons. And also the fact that, let's be honest, if you jump back on the, you know, on the treadmill that then because that's where your mindset is and you're you're focused on, you know, rewinning the hat and whatever, that's another slippery slope. That's, you know, working yeah. for, you know, for the wrong reasons or different reasons, or now you're always so emotionally connected to it, you'll never be able to step away. And what you hear from Do, so you, know, many- you just said something really important,
0: Gary, you said something really fundamentally important that chasing awards in food is the wrong motivation. Oh. I, I share that. I share that. Look, if you happen to get recognized at the end, great. I mean, you know, am I being hypocritical? Yeah, a little bit because I was offended when I wasn't recognized. Yeah. But I wasn't offended because we didn't get a hat, which I think we deserved. I was offended because it tore apart my ability mm. very publicly and very directly, mm. you know. I think you should have a bit of protection around yourself for that. But anybody who sets out, if your motivation, or if your if your restaurant's owner's motivation is only public accolade, you are putting yourself into danger. There, my friends.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with you entirely. And some of the greatest compliments are the smallest and sometimes seemingly mm-hmm. the most insignificant that stick with you and you remember forever. You know.
0: Oh, you're That's talking. Me. You're talking about
1: Alison. <laughs> Alison was a six year old
0: who. <laughs> uh, after starting her night, this is Anna Otto, starting a night very, very unsure and having a really bad temper tantrum in a very adult restaurant, I went out and I took the time. I went out from the kitchen, went and had a chat to her, you know, took her a little bit of ice cream and, and without asking her parents and said, you know what, they still haven't ordered entree yet, but you get to have ice cream before <laughs> anything else. Solved everything. Um, but by the end of the night, well, she came to say goodbye when they were leaving and she proudly told me just how much fun she'd had, and that she discovered something she really liked, asparagus. And I was like, that's really interesting. And about five weeks later, I get a card in the mail that she has made where she has drawn asparagus. You think to yourself, that is a memory that child is going to have. Yeah, forever. For the rest of their life.
1: Ever. What more could you want to do? What a great month. And looks you know? forward to spring every year. <laughs> Indeed, Yeah. <sure. Indeed. laughs> All right. I think we better wrap it up. But just quickly, yeah. I mean, you've got a new book coming out. It'll be out yes, by sir. the time this podcast uh, goes to mm. it. I think it's out now, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, yeah, the book's out now. It's called Seasonal
0: Kitchen. And look, it is uh, a collection of the very best things I've been doing over the last few years with Better Homes and Gardens, we we basically listened to our readers and they told us the things that they felt so passionate about, often through social media. We thought the best
1: thing we can do is to give you it all in one place. What's the one dish that's a go-to for you that you cook for the family out of those that recipe collection? Because you've always got a favourite. There's
0: always uh, one. Yeah, go, yeah, yeah there is the one. Yeah, there is one. It's actually a dessert. How many failed chocolate fondants have you seen in your life, mate? Oh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Many. Yeah. So, so I decided to make it foolproof for home cooks. And it's a really simple chocolate hazelnut cake that it, just as it's almost baked, you pipe a ganache into the middle and let it finish baking. No one's the wiser. And I'll tell you what, it's just as impressive with <laughs> near a failure.
1: <laughs> Works every time. Fast Ed, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. And, you. and you led us into a little bit of your life there that I never expected and I think um, the listeners will really appreciate. And I think you being up on our television screens gives so many people so much joy. It's great to see. Keep it going.
0: You're, you're really very kind of. Thank you so much. Pleasure.
1: And now for my tips and tricks. And what I love about Ed is he makes food seem so easy for everybody at home. And think about fast, Ed. It's all about quick, easy recipes. And he did mention a quick tomato sauce. So to remind you of that, if you don't do it, I love this recipe. You just take a can of really good chopped tomatoes, open it up, take a small pot, put a good glug of a really good olive oil in. And when I say good glug, I'm talking about three or four tablespoons full. Add a clove of chopped garlic, or you can thinly slice it if you like, and turn the gas on. And the idea is just to warm it up so it releases all those beautiful flavours and then starts to go a little golden brown and crisp. And at that point, you can carefully add the can of chopped tomatoes. I tend to throw in a little handful of basil leaves or maybe a sprig of thyme, a bit of salt and pepper, turn the gas down so it's just simmering and leave that for about three or four minutes. Can I tell you, tonnes of flavour, really delicious. It's so good, you'll never buy one of those ready-to-go pasta sauces again. It's cheaper too. listener.